Thank you to Miss Rachel for uh, letting us do that. She was uh, officially a guinea pig because she was the first that we uh, worked with in that way. And so uh, we are so appreciative to her. I'm so appreciative for her heart. Uh, she's not somebody that just says those kind of things. Most of you in this room know that she's somebody that lives them out, that takes the message and goes to places that others may not want to go or would like to go, but she goes to difficult places and helps people. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. You ever wondered how you became you? Like, how you became who you are? Why you do the things you do, why you say the things you say, why you act the way you act, why your life has turned out like it has. Well, that's a complicated question, obviously. There are lots of influences, but there's a pretty good clue for us in Scripture that I think is just fascinating for us to think about for a moment as we conclude a series called All, and we'll go in a direction that will help us to understand ourselves a little bit better. And here's what the scripture is. It's Proverbs 23, verse 7. In the New King James Version, it says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And the idea behind that is that our thoughts about us, about life, about God, about each other, about the church, have a major impact on who we are, who we become, and what we do. Now, it's not just a single thought that does that, but thoughts are the things that form attitudes. Attitudes are what form our beliefs, and our beliefs eventually are what leads us to action. That's why in the New Testament, in Romans... We're told to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Our thoughts are vitally important to us. And there's nowhere that that's particularly true more than when it comes to how you view yourself and what you think your identity is. I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago and uh One of the speakers said this, and it caught me off guard for a second, but then it's true. He said, nobody talks to you more than you. Now, we don't do it moving our mouths because then people would think we had something wrong. But that each day you have an internal conversation with yourself about who you are, about what you believe, about yourself, about what you value, about how you act. In the world, there are three general ways that people get their self-identity or try to make their self-identity worthwhile. And the first is what I would call the pump-it-up approach. Right? Anybody remember these guys from TV a few years ago? Right? Hans and Franz are here to pump you up, right? And what we do with the pump you up approach or pump it up approach is we stand in front of the mirror each morning and either out loud or subconsciously we kind of look at each other and ourselves in the mirror and think, I mean, you're good enough. You're, you're smart enough. You're, 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 you're doing all right. You're, you're good. You're, you look at the people around you. You're better than that. You're, you're strong enough. You're good enough. You're able enough. You're going to be good out there today. It's like we give ourselves a halftime chat at the beginning of the game. The problem with that is we know deep down that that's not usually true. You can only deceive yourself for so long. 
Some people don't do the pump it up like I'm good enough self-esteem kind of thing. Some people do what I call the build it up approach. Okay? The Lego approach. And so you think not necessarily am I going to stand in front of the mirror and say, hey, this is good, I'm good. But you're going to go out and build a career. Or you're going to build a business. Or you're going to build a life. Or you're going to leave a legacy. You're going to make a difference. You're going to build a ministry. And your life becomes about your achievement and what you're going to leave behind for your family, for your friends, for the world. Eventually you realize that even the best laid plans of man are feeble and weak. And within a generation or two are easily forgotten. You want a humbling experience sometime? Go to your children and ask them who your family was three generations back. Now, you may know, and some of you may have done ancestry studies, so you know farther back than that. But go to your kids and say, who was my great-grandmother? You realize real quickly that our legacies, even among those that are most important to us, are only a generation or two. Or the third thing is, pump it up, build it up. Or the last thing is, if you don't do those things, you just pour yourself into that family. I'll leave my legacy through the people behind me. And maybe you're not chasing a career, or maybe you're not worried about your self-esteem, but you're going to put yourself into your kids and into your grandkids. You're going to invest everything you have in them. And yet all three ways neglect the one thing that actually gives us our identity. Over the last three weeks, and then concluding today, we've been in a series called All. We started the whole thing with this understanding that we are built internally, that God has formed us internally with a desire for and a searching of all, of all inspiring things that all should lead us to Him. And yet most of the times in our lives, if we're honest with ourselves, we seek all in other directions besides God. We talked about the big questions that people ask about God. Is he in control? Is he able to be in control? Is God loving? Is he good? Does God care about me? And over the last three weeks, we've answered some of those questions each week with the ideas that, first of all, God is awesome. Remember we talked about that that word is used way too much in our society, but it is the thing that makes us stand in complete and utter silence in recognition of how unbelievably great and mighty God is. And then we talked about the fact that God is sovereign, that He's in complete control. And that no matter what happens in November or what happens on your way to work or what happens in your family or what kind of diagnosis you get, that God is in control. And the last week we talked about the fact that God is amazing, that the works that He does are absolutely unbelievable and that He is continually working in our lives. But today, here's what we're going to talk about. Is that we're going to find our identity in and rest in the reality of God is love. He's not just good. He's not just caring about you. Scripture says that God is love. Now, each week I've told you we've had one point each week. Amen? Y'all get all excited about that, and then I've got 14 subpoints, and then you go, wait, I thought we had one point, right? It's a one point sermon. Well, here's our one point sermon today God 
is love. Say that with me. God is love. And we're going to see that directly from Isaiah chapter 43. You got your Bibles open there, your smartphones app up to that. Isaiah 43 Starting in verse 1. Here's the first thing we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see five things in this passage about God is love. Five subpoints to my one point. And the first is this. God cares personally about you. God personally cares about you. Isaiah chapter 43 starting in verse 1 says, Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I will be with you. Just an amazing thought, an amazing idea here that God is telling us that he is personally involved in our story and personally cares about you the question we ask does god really care the truth is he cares deeply about each and every individual that has ever been on the face of the earth and in case we don't understand that or the case we question that look at some of the language it uses first of all it says the one who created you the picture there literally is of adam in the garden being created by god Personally, God reaching down, taking the dust of the earth, forming it together into the body of Adam and creating a human being out of the dust of the ground. And then the word formed is used there. And it's the same word used in Jeremiah of a potter who sits at the wheel and fashions a piece of pottery with tenderness and care and concern. Last year... um, Madison Creek Elementary, where my, my, three of my kids are actually in there. Luke's a fourth grader, Maddie's in first grade, and then Ava's in their pre-K program. Uh, and Susan teaches. She's a reading interventionist there. Madison Creek last year, their art program was given. They had donated and were able to buy a kiln. Now, you know what a kiln is, right? It's an oven made for firing pottery. And to commemorate the kiln was there, They invited us all, family night at Madison Creek, to do pottery. So we all got there, and you walk in, and you walk up and say, I'm here for pottery night. We're in the cafeteria, those very comfortable elementary school cafeteria seats, right? And they have all kinds of tools, and they just give you a lump of clay and some water and say, pick you out a spot and build something. Well, it's a fascinating exercise when you sit down with literally a lump of clay, what are you going to do? Okay? There were some people there that were artistically off the charts that didn't think for a moment. They knew exactly where they were going and how to make it happen. And then there were those of us who do not have many artistic bones in our body that are thinking, how can I do this quickly, easily, and get something that looks like something people will recognize? Because you know you're there with all the parents and they're all walking around like, ooh, what are you doing? You know, like, you know, like, my favorite, by the way, was my son, Luke. Luke, um, I went over there, I said, and his teacher, the teacher that was firing, the, the art teacher came over and he just had a huge ball of clay. And he had a little stem out of it. And she said to him, what are you making? He said, I made a bomb. Which... All you had to do was put a little stem on it. It's a brilliant concept, right? 
And so it's just this big hunk of, of clay. And she says to him, well, Luke, we're going to have to put a hole in the bottom of it. Otherwise, when I put it in the kiln, it'll explode. And Luke looked at her straight face and said, that's kind of the idea. <laughs> well, I don't know where he gets that witty re- repertoire, right? But by the end of the night, I had formed something. And this is it. I have it. Look at this. You might know what that is. It's our church, right? Can I tell you something? Our church is easy to do. It's not a hard to do. Okay? Because you just kind of go up. But look, so it's something that I actually, by the end of the night, I thought, okay, that's not bad. I put this in my office, um, showed it off a couple of times. But here's what I'll tell you. I am ashamed at how long it took me to do this. Okay? And the detail that I put in, I was upset. I didn't get the exact number of windows on the side, but I just had so much to work with. The shape on one of them's a little off. I worked on it for like 20 minutes. I was painstakingly trying to get this just right, right? Now, it helps that our church is uniquely shaped. Y'all realize that, right? Like, there are not a lot of churches like ours, right? But I sat there and I actually thought, you know, sometimes God just brings things to mind. I actually sat there and thought, If I put this amount of work into a family night project at Madison Creek Elementary, what kind of detail is God cared about as he forms us? Scripture says that he forms us like the potter does the clay. By the way, side note, that's why it's one of, one of the main reasons, That as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that God cares about every human life. Every human life from conception to the grave. And it's why as believers, we must continually remind people of the value of their lives is not in themselves, but in the fact that God has called them valuable. And as Christians, we're pretty good about that in some areas. We're pretty good about calling the broader culture to recognize the importance and the validity and the human, 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 humanity. I'm trying to make up a word. I'll just go with one that's already there. The humanity of certain individuals, particularly in the womb. And we need to. But we also as believers need to continually remind people that every person that is on the face of the earth is in the image of God. Formed and created by Him. No matter how they got to our country or where they originated from or what race, creed, color, or sex they are, they are created in the image of God, formed by Him. And so were you. And in case they wondered, well, what does that mean? He tells them, it's not just that he formed you. It's not just that he created you. But he says two things. I have redeemed you. Literally, it means I have bought you back. Now, understand, Isaiah here is speaking to the broader nation of Israel. And he is saying, 
I have purchased you as my own. I have redeemed you. I have taken you. In their culture, it was if someone got into trouble or someone had a problem or someone got in legal status or someone got in debt, someone from the family could come and redeem them, could buy them back, could take them home and set them free from that. And God's hair is talking about Egypt and he's talking about Babylonian captivity that is to come. He's talking about the areas where he's going to take the Israelites. But we know in the New Testament, when we get to the New Testament, that understanding of a collective national redemption is brought down to the level of individual redemption. And God says to you and God says to me, I have bought you back. You have been bought with a price. And then he says, I have called you by your name. You are mine. You're mine. A relationship that God describes here is of a father looking and adopting a child into his family and saying, you are mine. He's chosen you. He's redeemed you. And because of that, in your identity, you are a chosen, redeemed, created, formed child of the Most High. And you can live in confidence that He's going to take care of you. When I'm out with my kids, uh, particularly my girls, my boys are, you know, Eli's bigger than me, so he can take care of himself. But when... um, when I'm out, particularly with my girls, and we're in public or we're in a parking lot or we're at somewhere where there are lots of people, my number one concern is their protection. Like, I'm constantly aware of where they are, and I'm not as good of that as Susan is, right? Because I'm a dad, basically, and she's a mom, and it just works that way. But I'm constantly aware of where they are and where they're going and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And if it's dangerous or if it's not, or if there are people around that I need to be aware of, if there are places around that need, like you are never at rest when you're out with your kids because you're always protecting. And scripture says that our God looks at us and says, you are mine. We have confidence in him. Here's the second thing. Not only that, but God promises his presence God promises His presence. Now this actually started, I actually cut on the screen the, the Scripture off. I, I, did, I put verse 2 with verse 1, but it starts at the end of what we saw on the screen a minute ago that says, I will be with you. I will be with you. Now that's not the only time that promise is made in Scripture. If it was... It'd be unique, it'd be great, but it's not the only time. In Exodus, as they're leaving, he promises them his presence by a cloud and by a fire. In Psalm 23, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because you are with me. When Jesus gets ready to leave this earth, he says, and lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. One of the most frequent promises in Scripture is that God is with us. Look what he says in verse 2, continuing. He says, I will be with you. Then he says, when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you. The idea here is that God is intimately concerned with the details of our lives and he is promising his presence in everything we do. 
Now, what I love about this particular passage in Isaiah 43 is that it doesn't say, and because you are my child, everything will be perfect for you from here until the day that you die. Right? What does it say? It says not if you pass through waters. What does it say? When. When difficulties come, when you pass through the rivers, when you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you, God says, if you trust in me, my presence is with you, I will help you through the most difficult moments of your life. And no matter what comes your way, I'm with you. One of the greatest names of Jesus given to him in Scripture is Emmanuel. God is with us. And I know it's not Christmas, but it's all right to talk about that before Christmas, right? You realize we're only about two months away. Didn't mean to scare you. I'm just telling you facts. And it's not just that God is with us in a general sense, although that's there. When he says when you pass through the waters, when you pass through the fire, those are general kind of terms. But then he gets specific and says through the rivers and through the flame. The idea is that God is with us all the way, not just in the big ways, but in the small, seemingly insignificant details of our lives. God is with us. And because of his presence, it provides us the strength to endure anything that comes our way. I can't help but think of Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That comes right after Paul has said, I have known what it's like to be rich. I have known what it's like to be poor. I have known what it's like to be healthy. I have known what it's like to be sick. It's almost like Paul is reciting his own personal marriage vows about himself. You know what I'm talking about, right? In richer and poorer, in sickness and health. Paul says, I've had all that. And I endure because I can face any situation through Christ who gives me the strength. Now it's important for individuals. It's important for families. Anybody here been married longer than a week? Anybody? Okay. Right? Because here's my idea. If you've been married longer than a week, you've been through some waters and some fires. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? All right? And not just like like you're both going through them, like with each other sometimes. And the only way you make it through that is through an understanding of the presence of God in the midst of it. God personally cares about every person. He personally cares about you. He gives us confidence. God promises His presence that gives us strength. And he, look at this in verses 3 and 4. God values you. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I, Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior, He reminds Him of His power. He reminds Him of His might. He reminds Him of His greatness. Give Egypt as a ransom for your Cush and Seba in your place. Now, here's the thing, all right? What is Cush and Seba? I looked it up because I didn't know. Provinces of southern Egypt, all right? And in Cush and Seba, they were given as a ransom. What he basically says, that in your place, I took Egypt as a ransom for you. His point is, I substituted others for you because you are the ones that have been called by my name. 
you are my people. The idea here is substitution. Now, he's talking here about substitution of one nation or one people's for another. But the truth is, when you get to the New Testament, the substitution doesn't come about a nation for a nation. It becomes about a savior for a person. And it means that we are precious and honored and loved. Look at verse 4, it says there, Because you are precious in my sight and honored, I love you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. You want to know the best thing about those particular verses? Is each one of those verbs, each one of those descriptions... See, in the original language, they come in a sense of like, you are precious in my sight comes from a verbal kind of tone. Each one of those is in the perfect tense. Now that doesn't mean it's perfect, like it's not without flaw. It means that it is something that was established at one time and goes on forever into eternity. You see, as a child of God, you can never not be precious, honored, and loved by the Father. You can't take it away. I am valued by God and find my security in Him. To put it in the terms that we understand a little bit better, you never have to worry about God betraying you. There is complete security in Him. You know why we have such a hard time believing that? It's not because other people have betrayed us, although that is usually true. It's because we realize how fickle we can be ourselves. And we cannot imagine someone that will never even think of betraying or leaving or forsaking you. God values you. Here's the fourth thing. He's faithful. Verses 5 and 6. Do not fear. Again, I am with you. He's telling them that, listen, I'm going to bring your descendants from the east and I'll gather you from the west. You are a dispersed people. You are a people who have been broken. But do not worry because I am the God who will bring you back together. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. What God is telling the writer here, what through Isaiah, what God is saying is that I am still working my plan and I will be completely faithful to you and to the promises I have made. You can count on, you can bank on what I have said will be true. Remember last week we talked about, he says, my word will not return unto me void. That when he says it, it will happen, even though we might not see how or it may not be in our timing, it might not be our way, but it will be accomplished. I've told you a couple of times that on Wednesday nights we're doing, we're walking through the book of Exodus. And there was just this little thing that struck me last week and I, I presented it on Wednesday night and it didn't strike them as much as it struck me, I could tell. You know, I can tell that. Like when I say something, I'm like, man, this is really cool. Here it is. And I look out and you're like, hmm, no. Like some of you are doing right now. I see that, all right? But it's, just, it's a small, insignificant detail, I think. For most people. But it tells us that when they're escaping Egypt, you know, like when they're leaving Egypt, you remember that whole thing? Moses, plagues, all that, getting ready to go to the Red Sea. That when they're leaving Egypt, they ask the Egyptians, 
for spoils. And God had told them, they're going to so want you out that you're going to ask for gold and they're going to give you tons of it. And so they're getting ready to leave. And Moses is like, oh yeah, by the way, um, we need a lot of stuff to go with us. And Egypt's like, fine, take whatever you want and go. But do you know one of the things they took with them? One of the things they took with them were the bones of Joseph. Now, why in the world did they take the bones of Joseph? Because God had had a promise with Joseph, and Joseph had made a commitment to the Lord that he would not rest forever in that land, but that he would be in the promised land. You think about what it says about God's commitment to his people that he reminded them. Now, remember, this is a generation that Exodus tells us at the beginning of Exodus, there arose a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph or did not know what happened there. And so this is generations later. God still says, don't forget the bones of my servant Joseph because I'm a promise-keeping God. He says, don't worry. I know you're in exile. I know you're scattered. I'm going to bring everybody back together. It goes back to what we talked about two weeks ago. He is in complete control and he will do what he says he will do. And here's the last thing and the most amazing thing for me is that God forgives. Now you're going to have to skip down a little bit. We're going to skip down to verse 18 in chapter 43. But verse 18 says, Do not remember the past offense. Pay no attention to the things of old. And he goes on to say, I'm about to do a new thing. I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. What he's telling the Israelites is this. Listen, chapter 42 is all about his judgment because of their past sins, their past mistakes, what they've done. And God says, but do not remember the past. But focus on what I'm doing in your life now and forward. And the idea underneath that whole plan is that God is forgiving them of the trespasses of their ways. Because He forgives, we can have peace in our hearts and we give praise to His name. And just think about what we just said. He's a God who cares personally about you. He's a God that promises His presence with you. He values you. He's faithful to His promises to you. And He forgives you for your sins. People try to find their identity in pumping themselves up. They try to find their identity in building something great on this earth. They try to find their identity in their family. But there is no better place. There's no true place to find your identity other than in God. He's personal. We've been chosen. Which means we can live with confidence here today. He's present, which means He gives us strength and we can live with perseverance even in the most difficult times. He is love, which means we are valued and we can find our security in Him. He is faithful, which means He knows where we are. He hears us when He calls and we can live with peace inside. He is forgiving, which means those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are forgiven and we can praise Him forevermore for what He has done. Over the last four weeks, we've attempted to answer the big questions about God looking at passages in Isaiah. And I think we come to resounding answers on each. Is God in control? Absolutely. Is He able? Without a doubt. Is He good? 
forever and ever. Does he care about me? Every day. Every second. Every moment. Have you found your identity in that God? The God who is able and sovereign and good and caring. Let's pray together.